Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy and not a gender. All right. Two things that I want to talk about right off the bat that are pretty cool. First, smaller thing is that we finished watching The Bear. And yeah, it was an appropriate rad wreck because the finale is phenomenal. Like one of the best first seasons or seasons in general of television that I've watched. Um, I'm so glad that we watched all of it. And it was interesting because once we finished it, I wanted to go online and look at a bunch of stuff and not a lot of people are watching this. No. Or saying anything particularly discussion oriented. Like I was looking for like a little bit of insight into something that happens in the finale and I couldn't really find anything. And it's so interesting because I feel like it was being talked about so much and it was getting me hyped. And I'm like, we got to watch the bear. We got to watch the bear. Like there was so much buzz around it, but coming out of the other end of this, the season finale and seeing that there's not a lot of conversation around by people that have watched it was very, very confusing and very saddening because it's an amazing show and everyone should watch it. Well, I know who my coolest friends are because, uh, our friend who we went and saw the room with last week, Lexi, she's been watching it the whole time. Hell yeah. And uh, one of my best friends and our really good friend Jordan's been watching it the whole time too and I didn't know. And I'm like, well, obviously those two are cool people because they were watching it already. Now you can be a cool person too Yeah. if you watch The Bear. Yeah. My work has a uh, movies and TV chat and I was plugging it hard. So I think a good chunk of people I work with picked it up and binged it. Um, based off of some of the recommendations. It is kind of a stressful show, though. Yeah. Like, it's stressful to watch. It is. Particularly episode seven. (laughs) Yeah. But it's done so well. (laughs) So there's a lot to love there. So yeah, please go check out The Bear. Second thing is really cool, really exciting. So a couple weeks ago, we did our IFE episode, and we were fortunate enough to watch some screeners for some films that are going to be screening at 
IFE this year or Edmonton International Film Festival. And like we talked about, our favorite film of the batch and one of our favorite documentaries we've ever seen was Butterfly in the Sky, a documentary about the show Reading Rainbow. But we are being given the opportunity to actually attend the screening and then moderate the Q&A after the screening with director Bradford Thomason and producer Brian Storkel, which is totally wild and super cool. Really cool. Yeah. Um, thought we felt legit just getting screeners. The legitimacy continues to grow. <laughs> <laughs> we are too legit. Too, too legit quit. to quit. Oh, we didn't do that right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're very excited for this. And we want to encourage any of you and all of you who are in the Edmonton area, or if you're not, hop on a plane and come watch this movie with us. Hop on a plane. <laughs> um, the screening is on Tuesday, September 27th at 6.30, and then we'll be followed by the Q&A immediately after. And uh, yeah, we'll be there. And we would love to see you come out and support the festival, support the film, support us, because, you know, we love having support, too. <laughs> um, but it, it's sure to be a, a great time. And the movie's incredible. So yeah. it, seeing it on the big screen is going to be even more amazing in a room full of people. But, uh, yeah, we love you forever if you were able to make a little bit of time to come hang out with us and come see the film. And again, that's a Tuesday, September 27th at 630 at Landmark City Center in Edmonton. And we'll put a link to the tickets in the show notes. Great idea. Love that idea. Okay. Enough of the preamble, amble, amble, amble. Let's get into the movies that we watched this week. So the first movie that we watched was the second in the Three Colors trilogy that are being shown at Metro Cinema right now. It's Three Colors White came out in 1994. It is a comedy, drama, slash romance. It's directed by, and I apologize if I do not get these names correct, I will do my best. Uh, Christoph Kieslowski was the director, and he also was a writer on it, as well as Christoph P.S.C. Witch. And and there's a few other uh, scenario collaborators uh, that get writing credits as well. In terms of the cast, our main cast is... Zbigniew Zamachowski as Carol Carol, uh, Julie Delphi as Dominique, uh, Yanis Gajos as Mikolaj, and Jerzy Stur as Jurek. The synopsis is, after his wife divorces him, a Polish immigrant plots to get even with her. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, so we were... We were really looking forward to this, especially coming hot off the tail of Three Colors Blue, which we really enjoyed. Um, didn't know really what to expect coming into part two of this Three Colors trilogy. What did you think of this one? It surprised me. Yeah. Because, like you just said, we really liked Blue. Blue is such a showcase for Julia Binoche. And I was, first of all, just really surprised at how little Julie Delphi is in this film. Because, I, yeah. you know, she's on the cover when you see there's this um, trailer that I think is like it, these three films have been re-released in 4K. So they've been playing a lot of places around the world. Mm -hmm. And the trailer that's been put together for the re-release, it emphasizes the three women who are in each film. So I was really surprised that she actually is barely in it um, and that the focus is on the character of Carol Carroll. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the film is in Poland, and most of the film is in Polish. Yeah, as opposed to in France and French. I'll say, yeah. Um, now because of that, I think I had to kind of, as I was watching the film, recalibrate my expectations for yeah. it. And so at first, it didn't grab me in quite the same way that Blue did. Mm-hmm. And I think fundamentally, what Blue is looking at is something I'm much more interested in than what White is looking at, um, because Blue is about grief, and White is about like vengeance or hatred. Right. I don't know. What, what What would you say? Do you agree? Yeah, I I totally agree. Yeah, it's not what I expected. Recalibrating expectations is very correct, and you had to do it kind of on the fly as the film was unfolding. And yeah, I I mean, I, I I'm not gonna lie. I felt a little bit duped because I came for you know <laughs> Julie Delphi, you know, and again, like you said, hot off the heels of Juliette Binoche's performance in Blue. Like I'm like, okay, that was an excellent showcase of what Julie Juliette Binoche can do. Now Julie Delphi's turn, and it wasn't that. And yeah, I agree. Like it, it does a really good job of kind of exploring the lengths that us as humans go to to get even after being hurt, mm-hmm. or the the pettiness that can kind of start manifesting after one gets hurt, and the lengths that we go to 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 deal with that in unhealthy ways. But then the interesting thing to me was. Um... I was reading some reviews and articles and such and such as I do when I finish a movie. And there was a really well-written review on Letterboxd that helped me understand that Kieslowski made this as an allegory um, for the relationship between France and Poland and in terms of ownership and that kind of thing throughout the years Mm -hmm. um, with Julie Delphi representing France and Carol Carroll representing Poland now, I have a complete lack of ge- geographical or historical knowledge, and so this was completely lost on me. I didn't know it beforehand. I didn't pick up on it while watching. And I see the value in that. It's also something I'm not particularly interested in. Like, I've never been a, like, history geography person. Mm-hmm. Um, so on reflection, I see what he was doing with that. And as someone who isn't a history geography person, it helps me understand maybe some of the sentiments, particularly from Polish folks, um, that I never would probably look into otherwise through the character of Carol Carol. Mm-hmm. I can kind of understand um, the general feeling. But this film is just a lot bleaker and tougher to watch mm-hmm. regardless than Blue was. Like Blue has a lot more like quiet reflection and like some degree of hopefulness in it. While still dealing with like pretty heavy themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this one is, um, it's very bleak and and kind of uh, mean spirited. Yeah, which is supposed to be. Yeah. Obviously, Kieslowski can do more than one thing. He's not an exclusively bleak filmmaker. Although I think bleakness is a common like thing he uses throughout his his filmography. Um, but that was tough to watch when I wasn't expecting it. I thought White would be a little bit more like. Not bleak, considering the color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about the characters, the character arc of Carol? Uh, it surprised me. And I can't really say much more than that. Mm-hmm. But I thought the film was going in one way. And then it kind of shifted into another. Um, his What actually I liked the most in the film and I found the most interesting 
was his relationship with Mikolaj. Yeah. Um, and that's the best a, part of the movie. Yeah. And there's a scene between the two of them. I know we've, you and I've talked about it already. Um, probably about three quarters of the way through the film that just really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And I think um, demonstrated what I liked about blue and, you know, when I'm interesting to delve into Kieslowski's filmography aside from the three colors movies, because he has a couple that um, I think they are pretty bleak, but that might have some of that thematic and tonal heft that this particular scene between Carol and Mikolaj has. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Like that, that one scene that you're talking about is going to be my one takeaway from this movie, I think. Um but I, I'm I am curious as to, like once we go and see Three Colors Red and have seen all three movies in the trilogy, I wonder what effect having seen all three is going to have on this second one. Yeah, because I feel like Blue is a really strong start, and then I feel so kind of not duped, but just kind of surprised by what White did, and then seeing how like he intends to wrap things up with Red. I wonder if it'll just shift how they all sit within the trilogy. And we can't ever forget that this is a trilogy that is particularly speaking to um, a nation. Yeah. Like it, so I don't think everything's supposed to be likable about it. It's not. I don't mm-hmm. think it's a love letter to France. Mm-hmm. I think it's an exploration of his relationship with the country and its ideals that it says it stands for. And I think that's what this film is critiquing. Mm-hmm. Right? So... I think there's something really fascinating on a intellectual level about that. That doesn't always make necessarily for an easy viewing experience, but there's probably some fantastic papers written on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, it would probably be too schmaltzy if it was just like, Oh, I love France. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I think there's something, I, I agree. I think there's something that's going to be interesting about once we see what blue, white and red are all doing individually how we see how they also work as a coherent whole. Yeah, I agree. In terms of commentary on like France. Mm -hmm. I'm a Polish filmmaker. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, From just a kind of filmmaking standpoint, like I think like this is incredibly well acted. Mm -hmm. Um, The performances are awesome. I expect like I, you know, as complex and complicated as like the, sort of the interplay between Carol and Dominique are in this. Like I feel like the the characters are really are really well acted. They're really well characterized. Like you see the arcs happening. Um I also think that this is like again really well shot and really yeah. really well crafted. And there's an aesthetic thread between blue and white. Yeah. Like that while the films are tonally very different and the subject matter is very different and even the focus is very different. There's an aesthetic similarity that keeps them as part of the same trilogy that I suspect will carry through to Red. That where each film, although it's its own entity with its own focus and tone, the aesthetics is what brings the three together. Yeah. Which is really impressive and cool. Well, and it's interesting too because like I felt that, but I also feel like like Blue kind of you know, it felt a little bit more introspective and had a little bit more artful kind of moments throughout it. Whereas this, this had a little bit less of that, but still didn't feel divorced from what was happening in blue, Mm -hmm. uh, visually. 
Um, I was reading up on this a little bit, and I guess almost every shot in the movie contains one, at least one white object. So, staying on brand with the title <laughs> of the movie. Yeah. He had a plan. Yeah. I'm excited to see uh, where things end up in red, but uh, for now, how did white make you feel? It made me feel a little like hopeless for humanity. Mm. Just in the moment. <laughs> Although I feel that way in other moments. Mm -hmm. Like it was a really um, down feeling as the movie ended. It was just like, oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You. Yeah. I, I, I wrote down the word down and uh, there's like this weird human level uh, relatability of wanting to like kind of get back at somebody who's done something that you don't like or has hurt you or anything like this but you know and there's like kind of like the two roads of well there's many roads but like the roads of like do you kind of take the high road or do you take the low road or do you find a way to kind of meet them in the middle and there's just like that kind of exploration of what would you do in the situation mm -hmm. of our characters and uh yeah there's also like a little bit of frustration i was feeling like just at times with like some of the decisions characters were making but i also you know i was i also just kind of felt kind of um uh just kind of taken with some of the more intimate moments throughout the movie as well so a lot of feelings throughout the whole thing <laughs> not as many feelings as uh, in our next movie it's a, <laughs> lot, a lot more straightforward in this next one yeah these could okay <laughs> they could not be more different um, and this was a double header for yeah, us in the same day. Yeah, this was our second day in a row, although split between two different episodes. Last week, we saw Jurassic Park in the room back to back on Friday night at Metro Cinema for their opening season. On Saturday, they were playing Three Colors White and then Mac and Me. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what Mac and Me is, probably you do if you've ever watched Paul Rudd on Conan O'Brien. Um, but I'll give you a little background if you've don't know Mac and Me. Mac and Me came out in 1988. It is an adventure comedy family film directed by Stuart Raffle and written by Stuart Raffle and Steve. <laughs> written by Steve. Um, the synopsis, an alien trying to escape from NASA is befriended by a boy. Starring Christine Ebersole as Janet Cruz, Jonathan Ward as Michael Cruz, and Jade Caligori as Eric Cruz. Mac and Me. <laughs> yeah okay this was uh some context this was genuinely one of my favorite movies as a kid me and my two older sisters watched this all the time um and like enacted some of what the aliens would do um and just generally watched this very very often but my brother is three and a half years younger than me and he was probably around while we were watching this but is not able to remember the film. And so we went to it with my brother, Jared, and his partner, Sam. And Sam had never seen it before. You also watched it often as a kid, yes? Mm -hmm. And liked it, mm -hmm. like genuinely liked it. But this is considered, like The Room, which we talked about last week, to be one of the worst movies ever made. Mm -hmm. So I was curious to revisit it because <laughs> I just remember really liking it as a kid. Um, and so, you know, it was playing at Metro. It was presented by um, Homicidal, that's what they're called, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Drag, 
show where uh, before the show, there was a half hour drink set from Lilith Fair and Lords the Merry Virgin, which we'll talk about a little bit, I'm sure. Um, and then the and then the movie played and it was actually quite a substantial crowd. Like there was a, a significant amount of people. Um, but it was interesting to revisit this film we really liked as kids that is considered to be one of the worst movies ever made. What did you think of the experience of revisiting Mac and me in the theater? I thought it was actually really cool to see this in the theater. Uh, the drag show that preceded it was actually really good. Um, and they, they spilled some tea on stuff that's in the drag community, which was pretty funny as well. Um, I think that, yeah, I think that, like you said, this movie is probably most well known for Paul Rudd showing it on Conan all the time. But yeah, I watched it and you watched it earnestly as kids, as it was intended as a kid's movie. But it was fun to watch this with uh, with a crowd because the crowd seemed really into it and prepared to, especially coming hot off of uh, Jurassic Park and The Room, which had like this very high energy of excitement from the audience. I felt that energy here as well. And I, I will say about this that like it's not, I don't think it's the worst. <laughs> I mean, it's not great, but it's not the I don't find it to be the worst. I think it's a watchable movie with a cohe- okay, maybe not coherent, but it has a storyline. Yeah. Like when you compare it to The Room, mm-hmm. The Room does not have a story. No. The Room does not have character consistency. Like The Room is a mess. Mm-hmm. This at least has a story and the characters have consistent motivations. Yeah. <laughs> is it the best version of itself it could be probably not it's, it's not ter- i don't think it's terrible no i enjoyed watching it oh yeah and like watching it as an adult it's it's hilarious for how ridiculous it is like just some of the like kind of kidisms but like that's the thing is like it was made for kids and it plays really well for kids but here's the thing so as we're watching it I didn't remember a lot about it. Like there were some like touchstones from it that I remembered. But as we're watching it, it's all kind of coming back because I watched this so frequently as a kid. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this. Oh, yeah, this. And it's all all coming back to me. My brother doesn't remember any of it or possibly has never seen it. And he's just like flabbergasted. <laughs> the audience is so engaged. Like the laughter is uproarious. You know, and unlike the room, it seems really positive like it's not mean-spirited like we are laughing at it but in kind of a like oh you know like yeah. i can't believe i liked this like, yeah. it, in a sweet way other than this one moment where um there's a young child dressed in what we would now in not 1988 be like oh that's culturally appropriative that's appropriating indigenous culture and like the whole <laughs> just the temperature in the room froze and everyone was like Oh, no. <laughs> but then we all laughed because we were all like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, at the same time. But um, when I'm watching this, I'm recalling the fact that in order to watch it this often, my mom had to be into it. Yeah. So you say it's a kid's movie, but my mom was not a kid. And the next day, we actually had a little family gathering with my family, and we were out at a lake. And I asked my mom, well, did you like Mac and me? And she said, yes. And I said, well, what did you like about it? And she goes, it's a nice movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like a super easy watch. 
Well, I'm, there's there's some dark stuff in this though. Oh yeah. Where I was like, whoa, whoa, that okay, we're going there. And after reading about like some of the stuff that got cut or changed, like <laughs> yeah. there was some even darker stuff. Yeah, apparently, if you can it. get some um, international cuts of this movie, you can see some of the original versions of things. Um, it was wild, though. Like it was so fun to watch this with a group that was so mm-hmm. into it. It was really fun to watch it with my brother and Sam who didn't know it and were just like gobsmacked the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Um, the drag show before was really fun and even more fun at like the baffled folks who didn't know there was going to be a drag show, even though it was like very well explained and is even, I'm pretty sure it was even on the marquee that like presented by homicidal drag show. Yeah, it's all over the posters. <laughs> like it's, they were burying the lead. There's a that. great poster with like M- Mac in a like crop top <laughs> yeah. that they made. And it had like, it said Mac, but like in the Mac makeup yeah. logo like, on the t-shirt. So I thought it was pretty well known that there was going to be a drag show before this, but there were some folks who seemed very um, unaware and confused and like they'd never been to a drag show before, which <laughs> yeah. was really fun for me to see that. But I agree with you all in all. I don't think it's a terrible movie. I don't think it's a great movie. No. I'm not recommending it. But I think if you can go see this with an audience, it's pretty fun. Do you know that? Um, so people like to say that this was a ripoff of ET. Yeah. Do you think it is? I mean, I think because this, yeah, this came out in '88. ET came out in '82. So I mean, it's kind of late to be riding the wave, maybe. But uh, I wouldn't say it's like a one-to-one ripoff. Like I think that it 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 kind of does its own thing. It is close. You want to know what Steven Spielberg has to say about that? I read this and I love this. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> when he's a- when he was asked if he would take legal action, he said he didn't want to get blamed for making anybody else watch the film in order to make comparisons. <laughs> oh, man. Ouch! <laughs> <laughs> Roasted. Stevie, no. I oh. mean, E.T. is clearly the better film. But Mac and Me might be the more fun film. Yeah. I also have to point out that... Um, so... Uh, Eric, the character of Eric Cruz, played by uh, Jade Caligori, he's in a wheelchair in the film. And if you've seen the clips that Paul Rudd plays, you you know this. But that actor, um, in real life, although he hasn't really, I don't think he's really made any movies. No, his, since then his IMDb picture is the still picture him of as a him. kid. Yeah. Um, but in real life, he has spina bifida and uses a wheelchair, and that's never a joke in the movie. No. Like and but it's also an an important part of who his character is. Like there's a part in the movie where he's out of his chair and his mom's getting mad at him, and the first thing he says is like, "Can you get me my chair?" Like you know before before they have this conversation, "Can you get me this thing that I need?" Um, we see lots of shots of him getting in and out of bed, and they are not like in and out of in and out of his wheelchair from bed, and they're not played for laughs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know him. They show like the accessible car that they need and. You know, they have this big conversation when they get to this new house they bought about, you know, part of this house is that there's no stairs, um, that there's wide hallways, that the windows are low so he can see out of them. Like, this is a very accessible or access-oriented movie where there's an actor who genuinely is in a wheelchair in real life. It is not played for laughs within the film. And the film makes a point of showing what daily life is like for him without it being focused on us feeling sympathy for him. Like he's just a yeah. kid who uses a wheelchair and he's the protagonist and 
I think that's I think that's actually kind of revolutionary and it's a shame the movie wasn't better. Yeah. Because that that is done really well and I want to give it big props for that. Yeah. And it's and it's even as like the the adventure is going on, it's never played as like a point of like a hindrance or anything. No, like never. That. Like it's just like like this is this is who he is. This is the things that we need to do and it's just like yeah, that that that's what it is. He's our he's our hero. And if a person were to laugh at any of those moments, um, that's that's certainly not what the film is aiming for. No. And then you just know that you don't want that person in your life. Yeah. <laughs> so great <laughs> yeah. litmus test this film. But I think that's pretty impressive. Now, I think that narratively, like there's some kind of a suggestion that Eric and Michael have like lost their father, like either he's dead or mm-hmm. he's left them. And then, of course, Mac has been separated from his family. That really should have been the through line of the movie. Like, that's why Eric and Mac develop a bond. And that's never really substantiated substantiated or, like, focused on. So that's where this film, like, kind of loses its possibilities of being stronger than it is. And then mm-hmm. the effects are just something. Yeah. And I think that that's where there is a lot of likeness to E.T. is kind of like the, the Eric-Mac dynamic a little bit. I'll be honest with you. I don't really remember E.T. Oh, well, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen it a couple times. I've seen Mac and and Me way more than I've ever seen E.T. I feel like I have too. (laughs) So. I I just like, yeah, I remember going to the video store and renting it all the time as a kid. I don't think I ever watched it with my parents. Oh, we watched it as a family. (laughs) Often. So I don't know what that says about my movie journey but some families were mac and movie mac, <laughs> mac, <laughs> mac and me people and uh some people were et people i don't know i'm i'm not mad at this movie and i had a really fun time at it and getting to show it to to two people who had never seen it before was also really fun and i would do that again yeah totally and it made me want some mcdonald's and a coke <laughs> skittles I guess that's another tie to E.T. It's like, what candy can we rope into this one that isn't Reese's Pieces? But I guess the whole movie was backed by McDonald's and Coke. So there's a lot of McDonald's and and Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is literally like a hero. Part of the plot. Yeah. And they do make you they make you want Coke from a can and a straw. I'll tell you. Like Coke from a can with a straw. I'll that's tell you that. that the bendy a, plastic straw. That was honestly a bit of a missed opportunity. They should have done because the way they did the white Russians for Big Lebowski, they should have done Coke in a can with a straw. Oh, for they Mac should and have. Me. That would be. I would have bought one. Yeah, if they ever do it again, we'll be like, "Hey, Coke in a can with a straw and Skittles." <laughs> Skittles. <laughs> anyway, this was a wild ride. Uh, how did watching Mac and Me in the theater make you feel? It hit me with a wave of nostalgia and made me feel nostalgic in a way I wasn't really expecting because I haven't seen it in so long. But it did it did that for me, and it I don't know it made me kind of blissful blissfully ignorant of how bad it is. Like I, <laughs> I, I actually think it's not that bad. Um, and I like I had so much fun watching it with an audience. I if if there's another opportunity that comes up to watch because I don't think I'll watch this at home. No, I will never watch this at home. And it's kind of like it's kind of like the room. Like I would never watch it at home. I would only watch it with the crowd. Same with Mac and me. I'd only want to watch it with an audience because it was a lot of fun. 
How about you? How did make you feel? It. I really like what you said. It made like the nostalgia of it made you blissfully ignorant of potentially how bad it is because I felt the same way. Like as I was watching it, I'm like, this ain't so bad. Yeah. I I think where the movie ends, I don't know that you can spoil Mac and me, but I won't talk about what happens at the end. I think it's a really offensive attempt at allegory. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that I was like, Ooh, yikes. Um, And I didn't remember how it ended. My mom did probably because she was watching it as an adult. Um, but my brother and Sam, they were like, that was such a bad movie. And I was like, oh, I didn't think it was that bad. So there must be something wrapped up in that. Like we liked it when we were kids Yeah, and it's hard to see outside of that. It also just made me feel really goofy. Like some of, oh, yeah. some of the things that happen in this are so, especially in the beginning, uproariously funny. Yeah. And I don't think they're meant to be funny. They're not funny in the way we're finding it funny, but having everybody just like cackling together at how ridiculous it was, was so much fun. And I don't know that playing Mac and me in the theater is a common thing, like playing the room is, mm-hmm. but it should be. Yeah. And it's much more positive and it's pretty sweet. Um, yeah. So I, I had a, I had a really good time to be honest. How Like how special is that, that we're both Mac and me people. Independent of Indep- each other. Yeah. Independently. We found each other. Maybe that's, that's um, maybe that's the secret to love. Yeah. Do you like Mac and me? Did you both like Mac and me when you were kids? They should make that like a, uh, like a a, a thing you fill in on dating sites. <laughs> Mac and me. What were your favorite movies as a kid? If it was Mac and me, and someone else puts Mac and me, automatic match. It's a match. Okay, we're going in a different direction now. Um, but a great direction. Great direction. We were really excited for this since it was announced. Happened so fast. Mm-hmm. We went and saw the sequel slash prequel. To the movie X, titled Pearl. Mm-hmm. 2022 movie just came out this past week. Horror movie. Directed by Ty West and written by Ty West and Mia Goth. She co-wrote it uh, with Ty West. The synopsis is the story of how Pearl became the vicious killer seen in X. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stars Mia Goth as Pearl, Tandy Wright as Ruth, and David Cornsweet as the projectionist. And there's some other folks as well. But those are the three that I've picked out. Hmm. Um, yeah, we uh, we went and saw an advanced screening of this. And by advanced, I mean just like the day before it came out mm-hmm. um, in a pretty empty audience, which was a little disappointing because it was the only theater playing it on that night in Edmonton. I expected it to be more full, um, but I was happy to get to see it as early as possible. What did you think of Pearl? I just think we're so lucky to be around for this. Yeah. Like two movies of the same franchise that come out within the same year and they're both awesome. Yeah. What a gift. And they're different. Yeah. From each other. Like they're different films because I don't need to see X again, but just set in a different year. Yeah, exactly. Then I'll just watch another slasher film. Yeah. I mean, I would. I would watch I would watch per- Pearl as just a rehash of X, but it's not that. No, no, it, it's it's so special. And like I was reading up on this a little bit and this was secretly Pearl was secretly filmed simultaneously with X. Mm-hmm. And I love that so much. I don't know the full story or logistics behind it, but I wonder if Ty West was like, yeah, like we're going to we're going to be making this movie. But 
he's also like, no, but we're also making a second movie while we're doing I this. Think my understanding, and it could be wrong because this is still such a new movie that there's not a ton of stuff out on it right now. Like right. there's not a ton of trivia, not a ton of press. Um, I haven't seen any press on it. No. And like the, even like discussion boards are pretty just focused on like under like what people thought of the film as opposed to what we've heard Ty West or Mia Goth talk about. Mm-hmm. But what I have heard is that they, they filmed in New Zealand and they were filming during the pandemic mm-hmm. and that they, their filming got shut down for two weeks. And and at that point they conceived of Pearl. Oh, incredible. That like Mia Goth and Ty West during lockdown, just like we're on zoom call after zoom call with each other, creating the backstory for Pearl. And then they were just like, well, we're here anyway. And we like, um, they did like a treatment for it during their like two week shutdown. And then they got greenlit for it and they filmed it back to back. That, that's my understanding. That's so sick. And that's really cool. And then what a great example, you know, following the he- on the heels of what we talked about with Jaws last week to take something that could just be like a frustration or a hindrance. Or- yeah. And instead turning it into an opportunity like, hey, we have two yeah. weeks here. We're we're both in the same place. We're both in the same headspace thinking about this film and these characters. We both like these characters. Do we want to talk about what we could do with it? Right? Like, I think mm-hmm. that's amazing. And and I wonder, you know, had there not been a two-week shutdown, would we not have Pearl? Yeah. Or would it have been like a glimmer in one or both of their eyes that never came to fruition because they moved on to other things? Yeah. And then if we didn't get Pearl, we wouldn't be getting Maxine, I bet. Yeah. No. Which is the announced third film in the the X, X trilogy, cinematic which universe. is amazing. So something else that I think is wonderful about this, which other people might not think is wonderful, is because X and Pearl are such different films, conceivably someone could love X and hate Pearl and vice versa. Oh, totally. And I love that. I think that's great. I mean, it's, there's a, um, like we just talked about with Three Colors, there's a through line there that shows Ty West's aesthetic Mm-hmm. although they're different aesthetics, but shows his eye for aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, that reminds me of kind of like the hereditary Midsommar duality where like some people love hereditary and hate Midsommar and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I feel like most folks tend to gravitate towards one or the other. And I feel like that's going to be the same of X and Pearl. Mm-hmm. I personally liked Pearl better than X. Yeah, I, I hadn't actually thought about that comparison before of X and Pearl to hereditary and... Midsommar, because yeah, it's that contrast of light uh, and dark. But yeah, I was also kind of thinking about the characters too. You know, like I think there's really great characterization in all of those films, but I feel like you get um, with X, you got a really like, I think one of the things that was most notable about X and we talked about it was how much actual characterization you got with Pearl and mm-hmm. how dimensional uh, her and her husband were and how much of that you got. And you don't typically get that with kind of your villain in horror movies. Mm-hmm. And that was really impressive. So the fact that now we're getting Pearl and we're just doing an even deeper dive and getting more backstory and um, more characterization for who it is. Uh, there was something that you said after we watched the movie that I, I totally loved is that it's kind of we kind of now have a female horror um i don't know what the word is but like you know daddy yeah like the way that we have a michael myers the way we have a freddy krueger the way we have a jason Voorhees, 
we now have Pearl. Yeah, I just, I mean, and I could be wrong. That could exist out there, and I just am not familiar with it. But I feel like when we think of the iconic villains that have had their franchises, and they're so recognizable even to people who have never seen them, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, to a lesser extent Candyman, because mm-hmm. of course, you know, in our society, we're going to promote the white baddies over the black baddies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Candy- Candyman's had a handful of movies, hasn't he? I think so. At least three that I know of. Yeah, so he had he had a bit of a franchise as well. Um, I, I can't think personally of a lady baddie yeah. that had the same. We've had one-off like women villains in horror movies, although they tend to be more like Pearl, where we're it's not a horror movie for much of it, and we're just focused on that character, and then something turns them. Yeah. Well, we get both of that. We get just like the the baddie, the pure baddie in X, and then we get the, well, where did that come from mm-hmm. in Pearl? A little bit more like what Rob Zombie's Halloween tries to do with Michael Myers, which mm-hmm. I used to really like, but in retrospect, don't like as yeah. much. I like the first part of that film a fair bit, and then yeah. and then I, I don't like it as much. But it's so exciting to have have that, and I want more of it. Like, let's open the door to more like schlocky slasher films that also have a really cool aesthetic where the baddies are women. Yeah, because I feel like the the trope and the most common narrative and the the horror mainstays in, that are female are always final girls. You know, like I'm thinking like the Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis, Halloween, like that's who the recur, or Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street. Like they're the ones that keep coming back, but it's never, like it's always somebody that's being pursued or somebody that is in danger as opposed to the other way around. It's usually men baddies killing women victims. Yeah. Not that they don't kill men too, but I feel like X turns that on its head and then Pearl gives us the the background for it in a very So there was a Letterboxd review that um reviewer that said X if X is ta- Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets Boogie Nights Pearl is Wizard of Oz meets Carrie and that I just thought perfect. that was a slam dunk like So good. We watched Chris Stuckman's review of Pearl, and he really liked it as well. And he said he doesn't always find it helpful to make those comparisons. And I get where he's coming from because Pearl is its own thing. But I also don't think it's a a negative thing or a, a critique of a film to talk about where its influences come from. Mm-hmm. I think that's the beautiful thing about art is we're all always influenced by others. And I think those touchstones can help a person know right away, like I was saying to you yesterday, if someone were to tell me, oh, Pearl is like Wizard of Oz meets Carrie, I'd be like, sign me up for that. Yeah. But if you heard that and you were like, that sounds dumb, then probably you're not going to like the movie. So I do find those comparisons helpful in terms of letting you know from the get-go if it's something that's that piques your interest or makes you be uninterested, like makes you lose your interest. I think the reason I love... So Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I've never seen Boogie Nights. But Wizard of Oz is one of my favorite movies of all time, period. Mm-hmm. You know this. And Carrie is one of my favorite horror movies. So put those two together as as an aesthetic influence into this thing that's completely its own. It's not just Wizard of Oz meets Carrie, but it's got shades of that as an influence. Oh my goodness. It was so good. Yeah. And what a, I mean, I'm with you. Someone's like, oh, it's, yeah, it's like Wizard of Oz meets Carrie. I'd be like, oh, I'm totally 100% in. And I agree. Like, I think 
it's it's making those comparisons and those connections for people that are like, well, what's it like, or what can I expect? Like, I I feel like if it's a if it's a way to get more people intrigued or excited by making these comparisons, or for you know allowing people to have a bit of a gauge of where their line is of the stuff that they watch. Yeah, I don't think there's harm in making those comparisons to other pieces of art or anything. I mean, even like you said, they're drawing on inspiration. People making these films are drawing on those those well, other pieces other pieces for information. So Ty Ty West has said, or at least IMDb trivia says that he has said um that to prepare for the film he had Mia Goth watch Wizard of Oz and whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah. Which I've never seen. So mm-hmm. I, I don't um I've heard other people saying it feels very influenced by that, but obviously it is because Ty West asked Mia Goth to watch those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really cool. Yeah. We uh, we pre-gamed for this by watching X again. Yeah. Which I'm glad we did. Me too. Um, they pair so well together and yet are totally their own thing. Yeah. Like you could watch each of these on their own and not need the others, which is different from like a nightmare on elm street one nightmare on elm street two nightmare on elm street three thing like that's not what's happening here yeah and i like that better (laughs) personally where it's a conceived of project it's almost more comparable to the three colors trilogy or to a trilogy we're going to talk about after this Mm -hmm. um than it is to like the unending ceaseless sequels of a horror franchise yes that has happened with halloween and um uh, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and like attempts at that with like I know what you did last summer and things like that mm-hmm. um, because those tended to be or Final Destination mm-hmm. those films tended to be picked up by new directors new writers and we're just taking the characters we're taking the intellectual property and doing something with a new person to just try and make some money right mm-hmm. whereas this is different and I love it yeah and I think too, having watched them, like having watched X again and then going to see Pearl, you and I were kind of talking about it. And I think in the future moving forward, and we'll see what happens with Maxine, the third installment when that comes out. But I feel like of X and Pearl, I would watch them in chronological order um, as opposed to release order. Like I feel like I would want to watch Pearl first and then X second. Because I feel like... In our conversations, X is kind of the more easy to throw on it's fun. horror movie, super fun, whereas Pearl is a little bit more thoughtful and has a, you know, is slower paced, not in a bad way, and a bit more of a slow burn and just a really great character study. And I feel like I'd want to get primed with that and then move into the fun wackiness and wildness of X. And I think that that's how I'd want to and how to, how I would want to watch them in the future. I'd probably do sometimes one, sometimes the other. Why not? You know, there in a, in a world of MCUs where you can watch things chronologically or in release order, and DCUs and stuff. Why not mess with the XCU? Yeah, <laughs> I it was honestly it was so interesting. It was so different from X and. I don't expect anything less. Like we've seen, um, have we seen all of Ty West's like full features? Like we've seen the innkeepers. We recently saw house of the devil last year and really liked it. You feel like there's one more, but I might be, I feel like he's been involved in the VHS movies, but to my understanding, those are like, kind of like 
anthology movies. Like you have yeah. different directors as a part of them. But I mean, what Ty, Ty West reinvents his genre, not his genre, but his point of homage in every movie that he does. Mm -hmm. um, and then really lands that aesthetic, I think. And so to that degree, some people don't like, they like one of his movies, but not the other. But I get excited by seeing somebody do something different every time. And this, you know, it has that oversaturated color, that like bright, shiny dialogue of A Wizard of Oz. Um, and then it's it's pretty light on the gore for most of the film. But when it gets there, gets it's there. good. Again, much like Midsommar. Yes. This has one of the best title cards and end credit scenes. Like it's ever. bookended ever. so well. <laughs> yeah, I love ever. it so much. I said I want to just like project that onto our garage on Halloween night. Yeah. The visuals are so great. And I mean, it was funny. We walked out and you had to run to the washroom, but I just kind of stood there and looked at the poster that was right outside the theater. And I was just staring at it and like looking at all like the smaller details. And then the day after A24 dropped, they were doing a limited run of screen printed posters of Pearl and you and I are like, we need to call our 824 spending. Or we're like, you message me. It's like, um, I like this. <laughs> I know we said we were going to try and stop spending money on things that we don't need, but we got I it. need it. <laughs> I need it. I'm so happy. Yeah, we bought it. I'm so happy that it's coming. It's like, it's an iconic poster. I love yeah, it. So and it's going to pair. We have the. The, the original movie poster for Midsommar and we have the original movie poster for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Those three, Pearl, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Midsommar all up on the same wall. It's going to look going to be so, so great. Sick. Another thing with that I was, that if you've been listening to the show since the beginning, you know that I love a long take. <laughs> I love one shots. I don't think you need to have been listening since the beginning. You mentioned this in almost every episode. Yeah, I mean, I love oneers. But what does it say about, you know, so many more new th I mean, this is coming hot off the bear, which kind of revels in doing long takes and uh, like just doing long one shots. And then that exists in Pearl, too. There's so many things coming out recently that kind of revel in just doing one, wanting to do one one shots. Or well, Occam's Razor, the answer is simple. They're doing it for you. Yeah, you're probably right. They're like, oh, Elliot Cuss, he loves one takes. We need to put those in our show, in our movies. Yeah. I, hands down, that's why it's happening. Do you notice them or do you just, no. or you just like. <laughs> Sometimes. Or, I mean, like in the bear I did because it was, I, I tend to notice them when it's a moving camera. And right. I'm like, oh, but it takes me a while. Like you showed me the um, music video for that band and Phoebe Bridgers was in the in the song. Oh, 1975. And then like, I don't know, like a full minute into it, you're like, do you understand why I like this so much? And I was like, uh, oh, is it a one take? But I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't noticed. So, but I'm not as visual as you are. So mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes, yes, I do. But not always. Is it usually where I'm just like, kind of starting to geek out and i'm like oh my god sometimes it, de it depends on what it is um yeah and it uh, also i think it depends on how much i'm engaged with the film like i was kind of like half watching this music video but i just like yeah. I, I i just feel with with oneers that it allows you to get just and we've talked about this before but just like the little 
the little character moments. You just capture all of them. And I think that that's what helped a lot in the bear with the characterization, but also in Pearl, it gives Mia Goth this opportunity to just like fully showcase the her range and what she's able to bring. She's to the phenomenal, table. and it's so cool that she co-wrote it. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I everybody saying it, even people who didn't like Pearl, and I could totally see why somebody who I can I can understand why a person wouldn't like this movie. Mm-hmm. But everybody's saying that it's an award-worthy performance, just like um, Tony Collette in Hereditary. But it will never be given that opportunity because it's a genre film. Yeah. Which is garbage. And that's why awards shows are a joke. Yeah. Because it's not about the best performances. It's about whether you made Green Book or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I loved this movie. I can't wait to watch it again. I can't wait to watch it with X like as a double feature. I can't wait. Maxine I can't wait to watch all three of them in one go mm-hmm. I like what Ty West does I like me and goth and everything I've seen I quite liked Nymphomaniac mm-hmm. it's been a long time since we watched it and I don't believe we watched the uncut version but I did really like that movie and she was really good in it um or that series those two movies um she rocks can't wait for Maxine how did Pearl make you feel whimsically unsettled but uh it was such a joy to watch this in the theater and again just to experience something that never happens which is a sequel to a movie that came out not even a year ago and to have this x cinematic universe started yeah it's it's incredible i'm i'm so happy to to have seen it what about you so i don't often feel grateful to be alive in 2022 <laughs> In the sense of like, I sometimes wish I was alive pre-climate crisis or like pre-internet. Mm-hmm. But there are these moments where I'm like, no, I'm excited to be alive right now. And this is one of them. Mm-hmm. There is, this is such an exciting time for horror. And because horror is my favorite genre, you might not expect that if you look at my letterbox top four. <laughs> but horror is my favorite genre. I will almost always say yes to a horror movie. And I'll almost always enjoy it, too. Um, Between Barbarian and, you know, the films that Ari Aster has been making and these. And I just feel like it's such an exciting time for horror and we're moving in, like, cool new directions. And I love it so much. So, yeah, watching this and having it be so different from X. Like, X was such an homage to the horror we know while taking it thematically in some new and exciting and elevated and subversive directions the film itself was pretty on par with like a slasher film but this does something so new and exciting the way that like a hereditary or a midsommar does or a barbarian does barbarian maybe a little less so but to to (laughs) a degree barbarian and it's making me so excited for how these films will then inspire and influence other filmmakers especially because they're getting such buzz Mm -hmm. they leave room for other kinds of films like this or films that are innovative in the horror genre to be greenlit because of the success of these films. And it makes me so excited for what the horror genre is going to look like in the next decade. I am thrilled. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's amazing how much respect that there is for these movies that are coming out for horror that has come before them and the history of horror, but finding a way to bring in that influence 
but yeah, create something that's so fresh where you're almost getting, you're starting to move out of horror and just into like prop drama proper. Mm-hmm. Um, and to trust your horror audience to come on that journey with you, you know, sure. You might be alienating some of them that just wants like blood and guts the whole run. There's a million, like whatever the, the devil pray, praise at night or whatever it's called. Like, yeah, go watch that then. It's just like an attitude about movies that I'm, or just about anything really, like whether it's music or whatever. Like I like this, I only, I, why can't bands be making more albums like this? Or why can't these directors be making more movies like they used to make or whatever? It's just like, but you can always go back and experience those. Not everybody likes to re-watch things though. They want like the same version they want something new that's the same as something that came before. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I, you and I, I think have that attitude of like, okay, well, if this wasn't like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and we thought it was going to be, then we'll just go watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Right. Um, so I'm excited for this. I am. Yeah. Very excited. This okay. Journey of horror. Yeah. I'm there. I'll be there with you. Yeah. October is just about, just about here. I am so excited for spooky season. Oh yeah. So good. Okay, so the next movie that we watched this week was the movie Clerks from 1994. It's a comedy that was directed and written by Kevin Smith. It stars Brian O'Halloran as Dante, Jeff Anderson as Randall, Marilyn Giogoletti as Veronica, uh, Lisa Spoonauer as Caitlin, Kevin Smith as Silent Bob, and Jason Mewes as Jay. Um, the synopsis is, a day in the life of two convenience store clerks named Dante and Randall as they annoy customers, discuss movies, and play hockey on the store roof. Um, so we watched this. It wasn't a mystery movie pick or anything, but we're prepping for Clerks 3, which comes out later this week in a very limited capacity. And we're like, well, you know, you know it's only playing at one or two theaters here in Edmonton. And... We're like, yeah, maybe we'll we'll grab tickets. We'll see what it's like. But then we just took a look and it was selling out pretty quick. Yeah, very different from the advanced screening for Pearl. The advanced screening for Clerks 3 is busy. Yeah, very surprised. So we grabbed some tickets. So we're really excited to go see Clerks 3. I have a bit of a history with Kevin Smith that I've kind of brought you into. And now you kind of have your own relationship with Kevin Smith as well. I've been watching Kevin Smith movies for a really long time and... You were less familiar with him until you and I started dating. Um, before we get into all that, what did you think of watching Clerks? So it was it was interesting because of what what you're talking about here, which is that I don't think I had ever seen a Kevin Smith movie prior to us like getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we became friends, and then and then when we started dating, it became really clear that like Kevin Smith was one of your like pivotal creative inspirations or like just people that you really respected. Like you, you had his comic books, you had his book books, you had Mm -hmm. his comedy specials, you had all of his movies, you had special editions of his movies. And I didn't really know much about him. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember this distinct period of time before we had moved out together where you together, we watched all of Kevin Smith's catalog and some of them I liked more than others. You know what my favorite is? Yes. What is it? Mall rats, mm-hmm. which I don't, I don't think that's a popular <laughs> opinion. No. And and I haven't revisited it since I was in my like early twenties. I don't think we've watched a lot of these in over 10 years, 
But you did really bring me into the fold of Kevin Smith because it's important to me to value what's important to you. And um, I want I want to witness the things that you're excited about. Mm-hmm. So we've since then become like just kind of fans of Kevin Smith as a person together and especially the journey he's gone on um, since his heart attack. He's really changed and become a really like positive person who just is having having a time you know having a good time very like happy yeah he's just a happy guy and i love the relationship he has with his daughter i find it really beautiful um so we've seen him twice together we've seen just a talk he did on his own like a night with kevin smith mm-hmm. and then we also went to the screening of jane silent pop reboot mm-hmm. uh, that he was at and then he did a q a after but i want to start with asking you like why is he such an important person to you? Because I think I like the Kevin Smith of now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm as big of a fan of the Kevin Smith of then. But you liked the Kevin Smith of then a lot. Yeah. I want to know, like, what was it about Kevin Smith that was just so important to you? So answer that, I'm going to answer that question really long-windedly and kind of <laughs> give a bit of a my history and relationship with Kevin Smith and the things that he he has done and why it's resonated with me and stuck with me for so long and still sticks with me today. So I actually started watching Kevin Smith movies again at a young age where I was not meant to, but it was kind of interesting, you know, the way I was watching Jaws and like Indiana Jones and things like that at such and Rocky Horror at an age where I shouldn't have been watching those things. My mom was very vigilant about like she like she owned some of the like she owned Chasing Amy, she owned Dogma, uh, she owned Mallrats, but was very much like you can't watch these. Like these are hmm. these are too mature for you. So they became forbidden fruit, right? Mm. And I'm just like, oh, I'm not allowed to watch those, so I want to watch those. So I think I ended up the first Kevin Smith movie I ever watched was Dogma, mm. and I watched it sneakily. <laughs> like I had, I had a DVD player in my room, so I snuck it in there one day. I'm like, I'm not supposed to watch this, so I threw it on and I watched it. You know how old you were? Um, I feel like I might have been like eight, nine, ten. It's pretty, it's pretty young, because I wonder if where your mom was coming from is, you know, whatever with horror, like that's your choice. But there's just some potentially. If you're too young to understand the critiques of the characters that are saying the things they're saying, even within the movie themselves, so potentially like pretty awful social conduct you might pick up on from these films at a young age. Big time. Just like the way they talk about women and the way they talk about other folks and some of the jokes that are being made. Like it's it's interesting to me and I really respect that that was like the line your mom drew. Like whatever watch sharks eat people, watch people get their heads cut off with machetes and <laughs> in horror movies. Um, and, you know, Rocky Horror Picture, it's sexual, but not offensively so. Mm-hmm. It's not at anyone's expense. Yeah. You know, other than there's some consent issues, but um, <laughs> yeah. I respect that your mom didn't want her young son to kind of be exposed to some of the really gross things that are said in these movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you watched it and you liked it? Loved it. So loved it. Like the first three, because the only ones that we owned were Dogma, Mallrats, and Chasing Amy. Okay. So 
the my first one was dogma and then yeah i think that eventually it was just like my mom my mom my parents just kind of reached a point where they're like he's gonna watch whatever he wants <laughs> just let him do just it just let him yeah. do it so i think we ended up you know we watched like the other ones together um but then i and i really in, enjoyed those movies and i don't you know even though i for sure did not understand some of the jokes or some of the humor some of the you know bigger picture stuff that they were trying to say i still enjoyed the movies and then as i got older that led me into yeah like you're saying like the evening with kevin smith stand-up talk specials like i when i was older like teens i i watched and bought all of those but also kevin smith's podcasts were the first podcasts i ever listened to Mm -hmm. like they were the things that got me into podcasts like i listened to his first podcast smodcast um, with him and scott Mosier, and then that led me to jay and silent bob get old which Mm -hmm. is just him and jason muse talking and jason muse trying to stay sober Mm -hmm. and just recounting their history together and i just i like hearing that journey like i thought was really interesting and it was really funny and like i really like jason muse you really like jason muse i love jason muse um but also that was kind of the inspiration for me for us to start our first podcast which we didn't continue with but failed attempt yeah but it was that that just kind of filled me with inspiration of like yeah like i mean I, I I like I like talking about movies. I like talking about TV. Both you and I do that. So it's a bit of a false start of, you know, the it was like a taste of what we do now, but not as well executed and as well thought out. Might be more famous now if we'd stuck with it because of, you know, there's just way fewer podcasts at the time. But but yeah, and then, you know, I had watched and then like I actually didn't come into Clerks until a little bit later because um we didn't own it, but my uncle owned it. Mm. And I remember seeing it on the shelf, like the, it was like the clerk special edition. Like it's all black and just has like white text on it. And I'm like, Hey, like that looks cool. And then realizing it's a Kevin Smith movie. So like it, clerks actually ended up being one of the like latter movies that I watched. And then, yeah. Then when you and I started hanging out, I wanted to bring you into the full cause I really liked Kevin Smith and, and these things. And then you learned that about me. And I guess one time, he was at the airport. Oh, right. I forgot about this story. <laughs> and you worked at the bookstore at the airport. Yeah, but I wasn't working that day. Right. But what, what was it? Like, how did how um, did this happen? So at the, at the time, we had just recently started dating. We were 19. You worked at Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. It still existed. I worked at uh, the bookstore that's behind security at the Edmonton airport. And... Um, it, we were a really tight-knit group. Our friend Ashley, who's been on the show and we talk about it all the time, that's where her and I met. We worked there together. Uh, and one of our coworkers, Chelsea, she knew that you really liked Kevin Smith. Mm-hmm. And so she texted me and she said, Buddy, we all called each other Buddy, mm-hmm. Kevin Smith's at the airport. Do you want me to get him to sign something for you? And so I said, can you buy one of the Batman comics that he's written that we have at the bookstore? Because you also love Batman and Kevin Smith loves Batman. Mm-hmm. So I think you guys have that. That might be another reason that you've been so drawn to him is like your some of your starting inspiration is the same. And he loves Jaws. And he loves Jaws. <laughs> um, and so she, yeah, she went and she got him to sign one of his Batman comics to you. I think it says I heart Elliot in it. Uh, yeah. Or so yeah, I, I heart I, you I, I Elliot. I think it says, uh, yeah, like I love you, Elliot. But with a heart. With a heart. 
And I think your name is spelled right. I'm pretty sure I probably was like, please make sure he puts two T's on the end of Elliot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that was just this really, this really sweet sequence of events where like you had made known to me that you liked Kevin Smith. I had made that known to people at work. And then when he came through the airport, because he does come to Edmonton a fair amount because mm-hmm. he likes the Oilers mm-hmm. um, and because he went to film school in Vancouver, like Canada. I think West Coast Canada is a place he's familiar with. He also just loves Canada. Like, yeah, I yeah. get to, Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I, and then I gave it to you and we still have it. Yeah. And like, I just remember thinking that was like one of the coolest things and like so thoughtful and yeah, just because I have this very deep seated love of Kevin Smith. I just thought it was very, very sweet and very yeah. cool. Um, but then, yeah, we kind of, you know, because we started dating our Kevin Smith journey sort of became one and we developed kind of independent relationships with him and his work uh as time went on so like we watched his show comic book men which i really liked that yeah and we watched all of it yeah um, we've seen every episode which is like you know he's not really in it but it's all of his friends in burbank new jersey running this his comic book store Mm -hmm. um and then you know we've kind of and then we've been following him on his journey to like you were saying to just becoming a better version of himself Mm -hmm. um both pre and post his heart attack that he had that essentially almost killed him Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the relationship he has with his daughter and then his his kind of shift in mentality of his approach to his art and the movies that he makes. And then he just started making movies for him mm-hmm. as opposed to making movies for a studio or mm-hmm. because he had to or whatever. Um, so it's just like passion projects for him. And then, yeah, like following, continuing to follow his podcast. I mean, like I always look for his reviews of new pop culture stuff coming out because he loves everything. He's just a pot. Yeah, he's just and he loves to cry. Light. I love a person who loves to cry. Yeah. Um, and he loves his family and he loves his friends. Like I just, yeah, I think that's the thing. So to to start talking about the actual movie. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Um, one of the tricky things for me about early Kevin Smith is, is something we've talked about, like with Quentin Tarantino movies and that kind of thing where I see the me that would have loved it uncritically Mm -hmm. at the time. And then I look at it now and I go, Oh, there are so many, so many problems with human dignity in it. Just like the way white men treat everybody else. And as a reflection of Kevin Smith, the filmmaker and writer. Mm -hmm. And I see how I would have uncritically enjoyed that and found it funny when I was younger. And so I both understand it as a product of the time and I wish it wasn't so. Yeah. And so I'm to a certain extent forgiving of it because it's indicative of much of what was going on at the time. And at the same time, I find it hard to enjoy it still or like give that person a pass and yet i think that kevin smith is working hard to not be the person he once was Mm -hmm. and to change with the times um and i don't think many of the jokes that are made in clerks and clerks 2 and some of his other early films would exist in his work now yeah hopefully well well, (laughs) and i think that that's going to be really interesting because having watched this which is such a product of his time of of the time and then you know Spoiler alert, we watch Clerks 2 right after this, which is, you know, I feel another product of its time of where Kevin Smith was in uh, early 90s to where he was in the mid 2000s and now where he is now. Like, I feel like those three films coming out at those different times, they're just going to be like these time capsules of Kevin Smith and where he was at at these different times. Particularly because he's he's very publicly stated that the character of Dante is based on him. Interestingly, it feels like the character of Randall is going to be more inspired by him and Clerks three mm-hmm. but 
Yeah, it's it's just it's an interesting thing, and I both really respect his growth and his change. And I think his daughter probably has a lot to do with that because she's, mm-hmm. you know, I think she's in her early twenties, and she'll publicly critique her dad. Like he he was or still is vegan, but vegan by for health reasons, not necessarily moral reasons. She's vegan for moral reasons, and when they were promoting Clerks Three or like the announcement of Clerks Three, they opened up a movies. Mm-hmm. And they served meat. And she like publicly critiqued her dad for that. Mm-hmm. So like I, I think the fact that, and he allows that. He allows his daughter to, to to call him out for things. So I think that's really cool. Again, we're not talking about the movie yet. <laughs> um, so there's, yeah, there's this interesting thing with Clerks where it has so, Clerks, the original Clerks 1994, has so many interesting things going on with it because it is truly an independent film. Filmed yeah. on an incredibly small budget. There's always going to be this sense of love and heart I have for someone who, um, like that he went to film school in Vancouver. He went to film school in Canada. Um, And then he just made this film because he wanted to make a film. Like, I think that's so inspiring. Um, And I think it is where he is now. I think the, the films he makes now are reflective of the original Clerks, which was I made a movie because I wanted to make a movie with my friends mm-hmm. about my life. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to make all these other like more studio-based movies. And now he's coming back to that again. Um, but Clerks is such a landmark of like independent filmmaking. It's the first film of Kevin Smith's career. It's just, it's it's a fascinating capsule, both for filmmaking and for Kevin Smith. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it is just, well, this isn't, Clerks is not my favorite Kevin Smith film. Like I think that Dogma is still my favorite Kevin Smith movie. I, I hesitate to say I like any of his movies without revisiting them because it's been so long since we've yeah. watched one and he does have that like really gross humor in it that I don't find funny. Um, but I in the past would have said Mallrats is my favorite. So I need to revisit it before I, before I <laughs> yeah. really stick with that. That's fair. But yeah, for a first film, it is really strong. And I think that it just is a landmark, a landmark indie film. And it, you can just, you can feel the passion behind it. Cause yeah, like, especially once you start delving into just all the things he had to do to get the money to make this. And then the fact that his buddy Walt Flanagan is playing like Multiple four roles. or five different roles. It's just like his friends were willing to jump in and help him and yeah. make him realize his vision. And that is so lovely. You and can feel so that great. magic. Yeah. It does have, well, you know, again, it's a product of its time. So some of its language and plot points are not great. Do not stand the test of time. In retrospect, shouldn't have been being said on screen or done on screen in that time either. It it still has some great bits throughout it. And I think that the bread and butter and the thing that works the best in this is, and the thing that Kevin Smith is the strongest at is dialogue. Mm-hmm. He's a good writer. Um, well, he can be a good writer. And like something I didn't, I didn't really think about or notice when I watched this when I was younger is again, there's a lot of long takes in this, mm-hmm. but it has very frenetic dialogue, straightforward dialogue scenes. You kind of, you know, it forces the viewer to keep up with it, mm-hmm. keeps them engaged. It, it it isn't even necessarily all based in humor, Mm-mm. but because we're focused on these people that work in retail, if you've worked in retail, you can sort of 
relate to a lot of what's being talked about and just and just the 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 situation of working retail and the things you have to deal with working in retail well to being yeah i think that's the thing that is really compelling about clerks even if you don't necessarily identify with either the character of dante or randall is the apathy of working retail you've got a character like dante who is apathetic about it but also is going to do the job he's been tasked with doing. Mm-hmm. And then you have the character of Randall who's so apathetic about it, he doesn't care if he does a good job. Yeah. Right? And and they juxtapose each other in that way. And I feel like anyone who's worked retail is one or the other of like, I know this is retail. I know other people are making so much money off of me. This is such a joke of a job, but it is also an important job. It also is a job, so I need to do it. Mm-hmm. Like I've I've been both of those. I worked retail most of my life. I worked at a tea shop. I worked at a bookstore. And I mean, even working at the bowling alley that I worked at for a little over a year, that really <laughs> this <laughs> vibe. And I think that that's incredibly relatable. Yeah. And I think he's captured that in a way that nobody else has, that like feeling of working this kind of a job. And especially when you're at that like precipice in your life, right? When you're, it's maybe the job you were working in high school, but now you're no longer in high school. And that fear of, do I get stuck in this job now? Mm-hmm. Or is this job just enabling me to have the funds to do something else? And I think that's a pretty relatable experience for a lot of North Americans. Yeah. It's tough to, like, I remember, I remember when I worked at the movie theater in Leduc, you kind of reach a point where you kind of start feeling aged out of the job because mm-hmm. just because the movie theater in the Duke was such a hot spot to work when you're a teenager. But then when you are, when you continue to work there, once you get to be like 17, 18, and then they're hiring in young, younger and younger people, it's just kind of like your colleagues or your peers start becoming kids. And you're like, maybe, maybe I need to, maybe I need to leave. Even though I love this place and I love the job and I love getting to see movies for free, maybe I need to leave. I feel like working retail is just, there's this mindset of it being a temporary thing. Mm -hmm. Like retail could never be a long-term job. But I think there's a lot of people that actually enjoy it, enjoy, you know, in some cases, maybe the ease of it, or they enjoy the people aspect of it, or they, I don't know, whatever it is. Like, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair to just discount working retail as this person's not ambitious or this person is this or that. Like that might just, that might be their jam. But what this film is reckoning with is that perception of that. Exactly. Right? That everybody else's perception that you need to get out of this job. This is a nothing job. Yeah. And I think that's a societal perception that we have, even though, like you said, there's many reasons a person could want and enjoy and feel value in working a retail job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like I, I worked at uh, an Apple retail store for a while and there's some people there that like, I mean, I, I feel like some people think that Apple stores are kind of like high and above retail, but they, they're retail. They're, they're re- it's glorified retail. And there's people that I worked with there that I know are totally lifers because they live and breathe Apple products and they love learning all of, of all of, and it's ever changing. Mm-hmm. Like they're always coming out with new products and they live and breathe that stuff and they'll be there forever. That's totally cool. I, the, when I go to an Apple store and I want somebody to help me, I want somebody that lives and breathes Apple products mm-hmm. and that working retail is their jam. 
I don't particularly want the people that just, you know, write me off as another annoying customer. But in this film, that's how both Dante and Randall feel, right? Mm -hmm. They feel like they don't want to be there. Yeah. So I don't know what I'm saying. But then it's interesting, too, in comparison to the second film, there's a bit of an evolution. Yes, maybe we should wait in there. So we'll we'll get we'll get there in a moment. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, it was interesting revisiting this cause yeah, I haven't watched it in a, in a really long time. I think it does. I think it does have some really interesting things to say, although it's, you know, not always said the most eloquently, um, or the best it could be said. It did introduce Jason Mewes into the, into the world, which and is, I love him. it's just, just a, just a gift. I love him so much. Did you know that he was so camera shy during the first dance scene that Kevin Smith had to get everyone to leave and go hide in the video store so that he could be by himself with the camera rolling and not be nervous? <laughs> no. <laughs> I love that. I I think the thing that keeps bringing me back to Kevin Smith is like partially his relationship with Jason Mewes and like the complicated history of it and the willingness they've both had to be very honest and transparent about their complicated history together. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, you had me convinced he would be at the Jay and Silent Bob reboot Q and a, and he wasn't, and I was devastated. And then I just found out yesterday, the day we decided to watch clerks that he was in Edmonton for the Edmonton expo. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't been aware of that. And then he's still there today, but the just timing won't work out. So um, I'm really disappointed. I would one day really like to meet both of them. Um, Kevin Smith is another like dream guest to have on this show mm-hmm. from like, like his love of movie perspective, but also just from his being a dad perspective. Oh yeah. I, I love the relationship he has with his daughter and I love his heartfelt posts he puts on Instagram where he just like word vomits out everything he feels about his friends and family. And it, I just, I, I think the shift we've seen in his understanding of his own masculinity and the way he so willingly highlights that is a really um, positive thing because I think there's a lot of people that don't like his movies because he's not a gross dude bro anymore. I think you're right. And I, even when you showed me his movies in the early twenties, when I was doing my gender studies degree, Mm -hmm. I was like, uh, to some of the stuff, right? Yeah. Some of his movies I really like when he gets more into his stoner humor, which is there even in his early films, but is much more present now that I, I tend to be, I tend to really enjoy. And that's what Jason Mewes represents, right? Is the stoner part of his humor. Mm-hmm. And I think Mallrats is his most stonery movie, you know, free heart attack. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a real positive force in Kevin Smith's change in perspective and outlook on life. And I welcome the people who loved everything he did before uncritically not liking him now because I think that shows how important his change is. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think he can inspire a lot of other folks to reevaluate who they've been in the past and who they want to be going forward. Yeah. And I think that's an, an important thing. And it's the part of me that then is willing to really look at these sometimes super disrespectful things that happen in his films that he wasn't considering that I think he does now consider. Yeah. I think that's important. Well, and I think that I fall into the category of the people you're talking about. Like I feel, yeah, you were not the best person in high school. You will readily admit. Yeah. And I feel like I would also kind of unabashedly, you know, 
support anything that Kevin Smith was doing and like love all of his stuff and not be critical of it. But as he has evolved and, you know, become more critical and become more aware, it's been the same for me as I moved into adulthood and started realizing it's like, Oh, like I, I was really crappy and I didn't really think about things a certain way. And, you know, I wasn't really a good person and I, want to be a better person Mm -hmm. and I want to focus and do the work on being a better person and be more mindful of how I say the things I say yeah what I do with the power I have yeah and and knowing that like that work's never done Mm -hmm. recognizing that and I think that the fact that Kevin Smith is also kind of done that uh, along with you know my discovery and then continuing to follow him is also pretty cool and pretty inspiring and just Nice to see because I don't feel like a lot of filmmakers that Quentin Tarantino's not doing that. Mm. <laughs> well, I just listened to his two and a half hour Eli Roth History of Horror podcast and I was like, this dude is so far up his own ass. Like, <laughs> yeah. Which like the things I do like about his movies, it turns me off him because I'm like, you're, you seem, who knows, people can still change in the future, but he seems unwilling to ever look at reevaluating himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm much more interested in folks who are willing to grow and change and then reflect on where they've been, where they are, where they're going and speak honestly about that and yeah. and be willing to admit things they regret or take fault in now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Quentin Tarantino is a sore spot for me. No, big, I mean, big time. Like it's, it's really tough to... Like, it just makes you more interesting to evolve, you know? <laughs> it just makes you more interesting. To Rad just... Rack of the Week. Evolve. Evolve, oh. baby. Um, yeah. Uh, how did how do Clerks make you feel? So the thing about Clerks is it's hard to divorce it from its story. Like its story of how Kevin Smith maxed out credit cards, borrowed money, filmed at the store he worked at at night, got no sleep. And then look at like the films he's making now and how much he gets shit can like just shit on for them and not be inspired at a person making something with the tools they have, who they have in love and about what they want. And I feel like the original Clerks is what Kevin Smith does now, even if you don't like what he does now. And I just have so much respect for that. Mm-hmm. For like making the things you want to make, even if other people don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With the people you want to make it with to have fun. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what he was doing then. And that's what he's doing now. He just has much more tools at his dis- disposal now. And, you know, I think it's, he, t- he, he tells people to do this. Take the tools you have and make the things you want to make with them. He tells people to go make podcasts, get a microphone, start talking into it. And it's very inspiring. He, uh, how does it make you feel? Recognizing that there's aspects of this movie that have not aged well and that I, I don't much care for and that there's, you know, disrespectful aspects of it. I, I, yeah, I echo what you're saying. Like, I'm very appreciative and impressed by the way he went about doing this and just the passion behind it and that the passion for the things that he did has, it just bleeds into everything else. And it, it's, it is so inspiring and, makes you want to seek out what your version of art is and to go for it and achieve it and pursue what you love. And, you know, I was watch, re-watching Clerks this time. I was also just kind of 
really impressed with what it what it is like the how how good it is for a first time out Mm -hmm. um for an indie film Mm -hmm. and that there's you know you can see kevin smith finding himself and honing his craft of what he's really good at which is writing dialogue Mm -hmm. and how you know this was just the start of him doing that yeah let's go right into the next one Mm -hmm. um yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you you can introduce it. Oh yeah, we're watching. We watched Clerks Two, <laughs> um, <laughs> which came out in two thousand six. Was also directed and written by Kevin Smith. Was also starring Brian O'Halloran as Dante, Jeff Anderson as Randall, Jason Mewes as Jake, Kevin Smith as Silent Bob. But then brought in Rosario Dawson as Becky and Trevor Fairman as Elias. Uh, the synopsis for this one is a calamity at Dante and Randall's shops. Send them looking for new horizons, but the ultimate they ultimately settle at the fast food empire movies. I don't have as many nice things to say about this film, but we'll just start with what did you think of Clerks 2? Yeah, this was a bit of a tougher watch. Um, So what I'll say is a bit of a preamble for this one is that this came out when I was 16 and I was working at the Leduc Movie Theater at the time. And I remember being really excited, not only that it was coming out, but that we were getting it. And I was like, oh, we're getting Clerks 2. And nobody else knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was not... To be fair, we were four years old when the first one came out. Yeah. But there's not a lot of people our age that knew who Kevin Smith was, let alone that he made a movie called Clerks that came out in 1994 <laughs> and was a cult classic. But I think the thing that really comes through in this movie is that it came out at a time where the must-have for comedies coming out at the time were, was shock humor. And was punching down. And punching shock down. Shock humor that punched down. So, which is not just Clerks 2. It's everything that came out in the early... To, just in 2000 to 2010. Like, like, <laughs> we're like, you know, thinking of Judd Apatow's movies like 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up, uh, Super Bad. Even, you know, during the time of like Dean Cook when yeah, he was kind yeah. of at his the height of his powers... Well, even how I met your mother. Yeah. And for me, what what's most memorable, even you know, recognizing even then, what's most memorable about Clerks 2 is just some of the awful dialogue and conversations. The content of the dialogue and conversations that particularly from Randall. Yeah, especially from Randall. Um, that are just kind of the main aspect of the movie. Yeah, this is so much of the dialogue in this film. From Randall is ableist, mm-hmm. is incredibly racist. Like there is a section of this film that's pretty much unforgivable. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an attempt at we're supposed to see Randall as awful, but there's such a like dangerous Todd Phillips. Is that the guy who made Joker? Yeah. Like Todd Phillips Joker in here where it's like, okay, yes, Dante and everybody else are telling Randall that what he's saying is crappy. And are saying he's being racist. But so many of the people watching these films identify with Randall and see him as a hero and think it's funny. Yeah. And so it doesn't work on that level for me. It does in Clerks 1. In Clerks 1, I feel like we're supposed to be like, we like Randall, but at the same time, like, dude. (laughs) But in this one, that's all he is. That's all Randall is until the end of the film is just this, like, guy that just says the shittiest things. Yeah. And they're really hard to hear. And like mm-hmm. when you showed this to me originally, it was a hard no for me then. And I kind of forgotten what happened in it. Mm-hmm. But revisiting it, I was like, oh, right. I hated it then and I hate it now. 
Well, I think even when leading up to when we decided we were going to watch Clerks 1 and 2, the night that we were leading up to watching Clerks 2, I was kind of standing there and I said, I'm like, Kylie, I'm starting to remember parts of Clerks 2 that I had forgotten about. And I'm getting really nervous about watching it because it is some really I awful mean, stuff. I probably got mad at you then and was like, you like this movie? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Because it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's got some really awful stuff in it, which is such a shame because when it is funny and it's not punching down mm-hmm. and it's not trying to be shocking, it's really funny. Like there are some moments that are really funny. And so yeah, it's just and like to me the lack of character growth is such a bummer. Like the ending of the original Clerks, had there never been another Clerks movie made, a good piece of art leaves us with a feeling of where the characters are gonna go that we personally individually fill in the gaps for. Mm-hmm. And where Clerks One left us, this is not where I thought those characters would be in 10 years, in 12 years. Yeah. Like, this isn't the storyline that Clerks 1 left me with. Mm-hmm. And so, so disappointing to just see them back in the same place, doing the same thing, being the same people, and almost like even worse version of versions of themselves than we saw in the first one. And where the first film has some really interesting things to say about working in retail and that journey and all of that kind of stuff, this film doesn't. I've worked fast food and I don't see any interesting commentary about working in a fast food restaurant. No, it's I've just been, a setting. I'm pretty much, we pretty much are the age they say they are in this film, which is 33. And I don't think the crises that they have are actually relevant to 33 year olds. I think maybe they're relevant to 40 year olds. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe if I was working at Indigo at the airport still, and I was single and I had dropped out of school. Maybe I would feel the way these guys are at 33, mm-hmm. but they, they talk about 33 like it's the oldest age in the world, which I personally consider offensive <laughs> as a 32 year old who's just about, you're just about 33. You're a couple months away from it. Yeah. And I didn't, yeah, I just didn't see anything relevant about the setting. Like in Clerks 1, the quick stop and the video store are the grounding and heart of the film. Yeah. And movies just feels like it's a joke. Well, yeah, it it almost seems like a way to further kind of perpetuate that idea of working retail, but especially working in fast food is like the lowest of the low. Like there's always those people. I mean, they even say it in this movie of just like if you're flipping burgers by a certain age, you're a loser. And again, like I just I feel like sometimes that's all that people can do. That sometimes that's like or that's all they want to do. That's all they want to do. Somebody's got to do it. And that's cool. But I feel like that's like the easy, that's the low hanging fruit to mm-hmm. punch down on somebody's career or profession. Yeah. And to make fun of the character of Elias for like seeing value in doing the job well. Yeah. Or like caring about the job. And the treatment of that character. Is this, really awful. It's really Yeah. Bad. Like, I don't know. I, I, I like Kevin Smith and I like where Kevin Smith's gone and I like a lot of his movies, but I didn't like this the first time I saw it and I don't like it now. I think it's all the worst aspects of what could exist in different Kevin Smith films out of 10. Yeah. Because, I mean, I haven't watched it in a while, but I even feel like, I feel, I think coming out of this, his next film was Zack and Miri, which 
I feel like, again, probably has some punch down stuff, but I, I feel like a lift started happening there. I've seen that movie quite a few times. I actually, so I actually think that was the only Kevin Smith movie I had seen prior to you showing me his films. And I didn't know it was a Kevin Smith movie. I thought it was a Judd Apatow movie. Yeah. Um, it probably has problems. I, I recently looked up like what all of his films have in Letterboxd and I think Zach and Mary has like a two point something. Oh, yeah. So it's probably not good. Um, um, these he, aren't films that we've been aching to rewatch. We yeah. haven't really revisited them since we watched his entire catalog 10 years ago. We've kept with Kevin Smith as the human, but haven't really revisited his films. And we've watched his new films as they came out usually once and then we're done. <laughs> yeah. Just, and, and have supported him in that way. But they're not movies that we constantly come back to like we do with some other films. This is true. Yeah. No. And like we haven't seen Yoga Hosers. No. Um, but I, I, yeah, like we're just, that's exactly, that's exactly it. We've become bigger fans of Kevin Smith, the person now than, uh, than like, yeah, any of the films. I think that Kevin Smith, the person now isn't really reflective of particularly the films he was making at this point in his life where I think he had become quite cynical. Yeah. Here's the thing where, you know, when I kind of took a step back after watching Clerk, rewatching Clerks 2, here's what I kind of netted out is like, I feel like there's a really solid story here and an exploration of male friendship, getting older, self-worth and relationships. And I, like, I think that there's something really strong that exists underneath everything but i just feel like it's unfortunately all just eclipsed by some truly upsetting attempts at humor and by the overwhelming no homo of the film yeah like like that was such a thing at this such time. a big like, thing in the, we're friends in the but we're not gay like yeah which is so such the antithesis of most of what like jason music or like jay and silent bob are where like jay doesn't care yeah jay doesn't care if people think think he's kissing silent bob mm-hmm. like i want more of that where it's like we're friends and we love our friendship and we don't have to justify that yeah so i'm um, yeah it's um i agree with you it's a shame i think that there is there tends to be a lot of heart in kevin smith's movies but some of the cynicism and negativity that he had at this point in his life tends to harden those potentially like lovely messages that could be in there I just feel like, and I also, I don't know, I just feel like there there has been a shift in a lot of the content that we, especially that we like, where it's so much more enjoyable when it's heart, when there's, when there's heart there and it's not punching down. I mean, like, I feel like a show like The Bear, for example, if it was made during this time or if it was made mm. kind of like, you know, at the, the heyday of HBO shows, it would be a batch of unlikable characters doing crappy things and you know every once in a while there'd be a little bit of heart mixed in whereas i feel there's so much heart and so much love and care um, um and and notable growth in the characters of the bear that it is a lovely show to watch well you know and there still are unlikable characters or characters oh. characters that do and say unlikable things but that's not to say that there aren't Succession is the, like the most popular show right now, and I'm pretty sure that is just unlikable people saying and doing unlikable things. Yeah, I watched two episodes. I'm like, this isn't for me. Like, yeah. I, I don't like anybody here. I'm not. So I, I'm not interested. I don't necessarily know that it's a as substantial of a shift socially as it is with us personally. Yeah, no, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I think we gravitate. You know, 
We wouldn't rewatch How I Went Met Your Mother. We I would, tried. We would rewatch A Good Place multiple times because yeah. it is so focused on being good and growing and Yeah, every learning. time I've tried to rewatch The Office or How I Met Your Mother, which I loved at certain points of my life, it's too mean-spirited for me now. Mm-hmm. To devote, I could devote a couple hours to it, but to devote seasons worth of time. Well, and I think it's interesting to, we're getting really off topic here, but like, like thinking about like Parks and Recreation, which is a show that I think was really rooted in the sort of attitude that the office had, which it was like this very kind of negative punch down sort of attitude. But then it kind of recognized that it didn't want to be that and grew mm-hmm. into something that was more focused on positivity and people being nice to each other. That's so much more enjoyable to watch in my eyes and your eyes, I think, too. I think that's just what we gravitate towards now. Yeah, to try and then actually get back on the topic. <laughs> I, I'm hopeful that that's where Clerks 3 is going to go. Yeah. Um. Because I do personally appreciate Smith making movies for himself and his buddies. And I think this is a mixture of trying to be something of the times while doing that. And it didn't really work. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw in the trivia that one of the foremost reasons he made this movie is that he had promised Jason Muse that if he stayed sober, he would allow him or not allow him, but he would create an opportunity for him to play Jay again. And so this was him keeping that promise. Mm-hmm. And there's something so beautiful in that. And like that's the version of Kevin Smith, like the ethos he has that I want to see reflected in his films. Like the guy who makes an opportunity for his buddy to to continue to stay sober and make money because he loves and respects him and, and wants to create that opportunity for him. Like I like that he casts the same people and he has his friends and that, mm-hmm. you know, I read that people were giving him crap for casting his wife in this film when she's, I don't think she's an actress and he was like, but I like to cast my friends and she's my best friend. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I, I really respect that. I'm just hopeful that Clerks 3 does that in the vein of positivity that we see Kevin Smith, the person having, and that any crude humor is done in a like equal opportunity way mm-hmm. and isn't punching down at trans folks, queer folk, women, folks with disabilities, people of color. Like that's what Clerks 2 is. And to an extent, Clerks 1 is doing. And I want to see if we're going to be crude. I like crude. Mm-hmm. Let's be equal opportunity crude. And let's, yeah. you know, punch up or punch at yourself rather than at others. Yeah, I agree. One of my favorite stories, and then we'll, we'll get out of Clerks too, is um, uh, so Jason Mewes was so stoked about this that there was a there was a, like a motel that they were staying at close to like where all the whole crew was staying at. But Jason Mewes like got so into it that he like went out and bought a bunch of decorations and stuff and like made it like an apartment. And uh, every morning he'd wake up like bright eyed and bushy tailed and make everybody's like, good morning. Do you want a breakfast burrito? (laughs) (laughs) I'll say it again. I, I really, I really love Jason Hughes and I wish I had known he was here this weekend because well, I'm not one for just going and paying to get a photo with someone. I'd like to meet him. (laughs) Yeah, him like Kevin Smith, like just like two guys that really love and care for each other and have grown a lot over the years and done reflecting and, you know, both like, you know, through their careers and through their families. It's it's really lovely. Yep. Yep. Oh, right. I introduced this. Um, How did Clerks 2 make you feel? Bummed out because it could have been so much more. Um, And, you know, it has aged far worse than its predecessor. Yeah, like you. I'm remaining hopeful for Clerks 3. Yeah, I find it um, interesting that three of the 
well, four of the five films we watched this week are part of trilogies. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And I think that it's hard to assess those trilogies without having seen the third. And in all cases, we have not seen the third. Oh yet. my god, I didn't even. Th- <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That's wild. Um, in the case of Pearl, we really liked the second one, but in the case of Three Colors, and in the case of this, we're wondering if the third can offer some redemption to the second. Yeah. Right. So. Um, retroactively apply that. Like I think if Smith can use three to critique some of what he did in two, which he loves, he loves to be meta. Mm-hmm. And also in all three of these trilogies, we have a universe because in the three colors as well, all of the characters appear in all of the movies. Mm-hmm. And in the X trilogy and in like Kevin Smith has his view askew universe mm-hmm. where these, you know, characters are popping in and out of films. So I'm hopeful that Clerks 3 can allow me to see that Kevin Smith also regrets some of what was done in 2 so that I don't have to see this as a thing that I try to like and support Kevin Smith in spite of. Yeah. I have I have I take a lot of issue with this movie. I did then when I when you showed it to me the first time even when I liked all of his other films that I think now I might take some issue with. Yeah. Um this one I've always taken issue with. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, while he maybe will do that in the third one, I I don't know. If there's anything good to take from Clerks 2 into the third one, I think it's just what we've seen in the trailer already is the character of Elias and the um, character Becky played by Rosario Dawson. I don't know if there's much else good to take out of the second one without getting spoilery of some plot points or anything, but... Yes, we'll see. Fingers crossed. Woo. All right. Let's get to that very special time of the week where we name Bad Dad and Rad Dad of the Week. Who is your Bad Dad nominee? My Bad Dad nominee is Randall. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Played by Jeff Anderson. Um, if I had to name which movie, I would say Clerks 2 because I think Randall and Clerks had some potential to turn into a rad dad and he squandered that potential. Right. So my reasoning is that while he does sometimes help Dante out and see objectively about Dante's life, he always waits to the last minute to do it. Mm -hmm. Like he's not trying to help him in the moment as a individual. He keeps his own feelings pushed deep down inside while critiquing everybody else for their actions and feelings. He is literally so rude to everyone and it's because he doesn't like himself Mm-hmm. He has zero ability for self-reflection or desire for change, but yet is willing to chastise everybody else for being themselves. Yeah. Um, I would hate to have Oof. him as a dad. Yeah. That's, that's, those are really good descriptors. Thanks. That's really good. Um, <laughs> I went with Ruth, AKA Pearl's mom, <laughs> AKA mama from, <laughs> from Pearl. Yeah. Um, you know, just like main offenders are that she's toxic She's overbearing. She's hurtful and she's very controlling. Um, she's just like all around, not a great person who you want uh, as a, as a dad. But you know, I, I liked like, it's a little bit more low hanging fruit and I love the kind of deeper exploration you did for yours. So I, I, I think that, I think that Randall is going to get it this week. I also see some potential for Randall to become a rad dad. Yeah, And I think it's worthwhile talking about that, like, we have this binary bad dad, rad dad, 
but I believe people are capable of changing. Mm-hmm. And we're more talking about the behaviors that we think are perhaps dangerous in fathers mm-hmm. or behaviors that we think are really lovely in fathers. And I hope that Randall Graves becomes a rad dad in Clerks 3. Mm-hmm. But for now, the Randall Gra- Graves of Clerks 2 kick rocks, get out of here. Bye bye. Yeah. Who's your rad dad? My rad dad is Michael. AKA Eric's brother from Mac and me. <laughs> <laughs> that was my second choice. Nice. Um, I just love that he's a hundred percent in on helping yeah. Mac and Eric yeah. out. Like as soon as he, it's very quickly that he just realizes what's going on. And then he's like, yeah, I'm going to help my brother yeah. um, and his little alien friend. <laughs> um, his mysterious alien creature. Yeah. Otherwise known as Mac. And I just feel like he really cares and he has this willingness to hustle so like really like he understands that things are immediate and emergent and he's like we gotta go and i'm there for it um he's also really compassionate like about anybody coming in and out of the store this his story um and helping them out or seeing what they need or trying to understand what they need and wouldn't expect that from the older brother character in a movie like this That's so fair. i thought that was kind of cool and actually a little bit there's a little bit of that in E.T. I thought it was kind of better here. Back <laughs> in me, one point. But I also think the older brother's name in E.T. is also Michael. So there's nice. another nice. <laughs> another comparison. Who's yours? Okay, I really you gave some really good arguments. And like there was a point where I was going to name him as the rad dad. But I'm really going to try and convince you of my choice. So I'm nominating Kevin Smith's character of Silent Bob from both films. Okay. These are my reasons. He is an incredibly comforting presence, like Silent Bob, the character. When he is a joker, always in a lighthearted way. Like his joking is, is like his prankishness is just like fun and cute. It's never mm-hmm. mean spirited. He just lets people do their thing. Like he he is there with Jay, pl- press and play on the boombox that Jay can dance. And then when Jay's like, you dance with me, he does. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, when he's asked to change the music and clerks too, he does. But then when he does have something to say, it's incredibly helpful and wise. Like he's just been observing what's going on. He's been this presence that's supportive and there. But when you ask him to say something or when he realizes you need something said to you, he has the dad wisdom. Also, he's Kevin Smith, and I want the real Kevin Smith to be my real dad. (laughs) The real Kevin Smith basically is my real dad. Just like a pot-smoking guy who likes to cry and gives – I bet Kevin Smith gives the best hugs. I really would like to get a hug from Kevin Smith at some (laughs) point in my life. (laughs) Kevin Smith is a real-life rad dad, but I think that all of that is channeled through the character of Silent Bob. He's Jay's rad dad. In our relationship. Would you say that I'm the silent Bob? <laughs> I'm the Jason Mewes, hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm like Jay mixed with a little bit of Dante. You know, as much as I'm, I'm really rooting for Michael for Mac and me. I I can't deny Silent Bob because uh, yeah, just are like, they convincing arguments? Uh, yeah, and it's it's an all it's an energy thing. You're totally right. Like he just exudes this really calming energy. 
that can be really centering and that you can rely on and you can keep returning. You can keep going back to. And when, okay, I'm going to get so like, I don't, this actually like makes me emotional, but particularly, I think it's in both, but particularly in Clerks too. When Silent Bob smiles, he smiles the way real life Kevin Smith smiles. Mm. I don't know that there's a smile in the world I like better than Kevin Smith's smile. It is so genuine and it is so warm and it's so sweet. Like it's just like it reminds me of the part of my dad where it was almost impossible to be mad at him when you were in a room with him because he was he just had this warmth to his presence and Kevin Smith has that, mm-hmm. and he brings that to the character Silent Bob because I don't know that Kevin Smith know, knows how not to have that, particularly at this point in his life. I think he's been a cynical person. He's had difficult times in his life, but I think when he's doing the things he loves, and now my understanding is that he approaches his whole life this way, that he just loves life, he has such a genuine joy for being in the space doing the thing he does that is so visible in his smile mm-hmm. and it's infectious and it's lovely and it's that dad energy of like any grouchiness i just had is gone because look at this guy yeah i just love him right. I, i'm not happy about clerks to kevin smith but i hope that one day you come on our show we're from edmonton you love edmonton and i hope that one day you give me a hug and i hope that it is as great as i think it will be mm-hmm. so kevin smith character silent bob from both clerks one and two be our dad dad. and real kevin smith be my dad yeah (laughs) love that okay before we get out of here rad wreck of the week we just started and watched the first two episodes of atlanta season four the final season um atlanta is incredible i mean if you like just if you like twin peaks and the vibe of Twin Peaks and just the very mysterious David Lynchian sort of vibe of it all. Atlanta is doing that and putting its own twist on it. The work that, that Donald Glover and company put in on that show is incredible. And these first two episodes, the last season are no exception. So we're recommending Atlanta as a whole, but if you've already seen it, make sure that you start with, you start diving into season four. The first two episodes are so amazing. It's so good. It's so good. That's it. That is it. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday and you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad, on Twitter at baddadraddad. You can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Links for those are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could drop us a rating, review, or a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. I was going to do it for these two stinkies this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads have to be bad. Bye.